Welcome to Narrative Now, the podcast where we talk about all things narrative. I'm Ash Barnwell. And I'm Sina Raum. And we are both sociologists at the University of Melbourne with a keen interest in narrative. In this podcast series, we explore new ideas and key issues across narrative research and the many crafts of storytelling. We want to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on Wurundjeri land, where we both live and work, and we pay our respect to elders past and present. In this What's New episode of Narrative Now, we spoke to Dr. Eve Rees about their new book, All About Eve, Notes on a Transition. Dr. Rees is an award-winning writer and historian living on unceded Wurundjeri land. At present, they are a lecturer in history at La Trobe University and co-host of the Archive Fever podcast. Rees was the recipient of the 2020 Calibre Essay Prize, awarded for the essay Reading the Mess Backwards and was a 2021 Varuna Residential Fellow. They are the co-founder of the Spilling the Tea Transgender Writing Collective and volunteer with Transgender Victoria. All About Eve is a memoir which recounts the experience of gender transition. And in a move that challenges conventions about memoirs, it is written at the age of 30. We spoke to Eve about what it was like to write the book, including some of the methodological and ethical considerations. For example, when writing about living people, as well as working with life narrative in a way that also raises critical questions about what a life narrative should look like. So Eve, thanks so much for chatting to us today. We thought that to get us started, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you came to write all about Eve and what the experience of writing a memoir at the right young age of 30 was like. Um, well, in a way, I, um, I came to write this book because trans writing really saved my life. Um, you know, I was someone who, um, you know, went through my entire teens and 20s not realising I was trans, you know, living in my assigned role as woman. But just kind of living with this state of kind of perpetual wrongness and unease that I didn't really have a name for, but it kind of, you know, manifested as eating disorders and, you know, mental health problems and so on. And then in my late 20s, I, um, I started reading a lot of trans writing in the wake of, you know, what's been called the trans tipping point, this moment in kind of 2015 or so when there was a sudden kind of... Um, flowering of trans culture and increased trans representation. And I was engaging with this work really heavily and suddenly I was like, oh, oh, that's me. I recognise myself in these uh, stories and these concepts that I'd never really seen before. And, um, you know, that was the really game-changing moment where, you know, the light bulb went on and I realised that I was trans and, you know, and that realisation has come with challenges but has overall made such a positive um, difference to my life. So I suppose because writing was my kind of route into transness, the writing of others, it sort of made sense for me to start writing in the early stages of my transition to kind of make sense of, you know, my own experience. Um, you know, I think my background as an academic, as a historian, obviously influenced that because it just meant I'm a word person. I'm used to kind of apprehending the world through language. Um, so I was, I started writing um, 
some short essays that uh, got published and one of them won a prize last year, which I was sort of on the back of that, I was uh, offered a book contract. And, you know, I mean, in a way, like, of course, yeah, being 30 or, you know, as I was when I transitioned or 33 as I am now, it is a ridiculously young age to write a memoir. But I suppose... um, you know, I think time works really differently in trans life cycles. Um, you know, on the one hand, coming out, recognising my transness at the age of 30 does feel kind of like an embarrassingly late, kind of belated point to be doing that when, you know, many trans people might know their identity when they're, you know, they're small children, you know, three, four, five years of age. It felt kind of a bit of a, you know, a bit of a failure almost to a kind of embarrassing failure to be coming that late. So I sort of felt really old in some ways, but then kind of coming out at the age of 30 also kind of put me in this strange position of being a trans baby where people who in chronological years might be significantly younger than me, you know, say in their, in their early twenties, but if they've been out for five years, they've kind of got this hard won wisdom and knowledge of how transphobia works and, you know, um, how trans advocacy works that I just am barely beginning to understand. So I also felt kind of really babyish in some ways. Um, And then I also had this kind of weird experience of feeling like I'd regressed to boyhood in some ways Um, because, you know, after years of presenting as a woman, I sort of, once I underwent social transition um, and affirmed my gender through changing, you know, my clothes and my hairstyle and things like that, I started to kind of replicate the aesthetic I had when I was about 11 years old. So it was sort of this (laughs) kind of embarrassing reversal. But I, um, so I suppose like all those funny ways in which time works in really weird ways Mm. in trans life cycle, you know, um, theorists like Jack Halberstam has kind of theorised this as, you know, part of kind of inherent and defining part of trans and queer lives that we don't follow the kind of, you know, grow up, go to university, get married, have kids, buy a house, work, die kind of life cycle. It, it, all that kind of context made it feel less weird to write um, a memoir at such a young age. And, and in a way I kind of wanted to, with this book, wanted to play a bit with the conventions of what memoir is for trans people in particular. Like I didn't want to tell a kind of, you know, I was born and everything that happened from there kind of linear narrative. I wanted mm. to ca- tell a kind of more thematic story that kind of jumps in and out of different points in time. Yeah, which it, which it does. And, um, and that's, I think, yeah, fascinating, that structure of the book that you've written here. Um, and I think it's also just like hearing you, you explain this or tell about how the book came about. I think it's just... Um, yeah, it's interesting how it really sort of demonstrates, I guess, that kind of power of narrative in the sense of that it's the recognising yourself in the stories that you encounter, that sort of how, how mm. that reflects back and, you know, gives yeah. you that kind of language and, and even this sort of sense of self to find out, oh, this is actually, like, this is what I am experiencing or how I feel or, you know, I think, yeah, it's very sort of um, powerful in that sense. Completely. You know, I mean, I... Um... 
you know, I obviously knew objectively that trans people existed, but it took reading like intimate stories to see myself in them. And that was, you know, another motivation for writing a memoir myself to kind of pass on that, hopefully to others, to create a kind of intimate story that allows other people to perhaps recognise themselves or understand people in their life better or just understand trans people in, in general. I mean, it's kind of confronting to kind of come to this realisation as someone trained as an academic used to writing very, like, theoretical, peer-reviewed academic papers that actually, you know, stories are what get to people. Stories change hearts and minds. You know, you can bombard people with facts and data, but it's really it's really stories that change the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I could take you back to what you were saying about time in the book, um, you use the kind of idea of turning points quite a bit in the book and in some ways the narrative of the book is you reflecting back on where these points might have been across your life so far. And I was wondering how did you choose which moments to give significance? Like was this something that came in the reflective process of writing itself? Yeah, I suppose it came from... What I think of is the way trans people often re-narrativize their life when they recognize themselves as trans. And it's, I mean, it's probably similar for other kind of forms of realization. You know, people who perhaps are, you know, diagnosed as neurodiverse in adulthood might look back and kind of re-narrativize their life and say, oh, look, they were the signs, they were the turning points. So I was kind of thinking a lot about that and kind of, I suppose, looking for these moments where, you know, kind of submerged knowledges kind of bubbled up to the surface or things shifted in powerful ways. And I suppose that that kind of process of reflection was what generated the turning points that appear in the book. But I suppose I'm also a bit wary of turning points as well because, you know, it's, it's very tempting in that re-narrativizing process to say, oh, look, you know, all the evidence was there all along. Like, clearly I was trans. Why did no one realise? Um, when that's just not the case, you know, human lives are much messier than that. You know, I can tell one kind of story where there's all these obvious turning points and signs, but another story where I was like, oh, clearly this person was like a cisgender girl and woman and, you know, had long hair and wore dresses and kissed boys and, you know, did lots of high femme things. Um, so it's, it's important, I think, to be kind of sceptical of the stories we tell of our lives and recognise there, you know, there are a multiplicity of stories and, you know, we keep that process is unending. You know, I've told mm. one story of my life now. If I was to write another memoir in 10 yeah. years' time, I'd probably write a completely mm. different story. Yeah, there's something so fascinating in that perspective of hindsight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's... Um, it's really interesting, I think, the way humans we're so drawn to kind of find a kind of overarching meta narrative that will sort of parcel all the messiness of our lives into one story, one kind of teleological story of it was all mm-hmm. kind of coming to this point of realization. And I suppose, you know, I felt in this strange position where, on the one hand, I was really conscious of that desire in myself. Um, and then still am, uh, to feel like, you know, I had this messiness and now I've come up with the, with the framework that explains it all and I'm fixed. But also, you know, also trying to hold the other truth that, you know, things are always more complicated than mm. that. And to kind of 
keep alive the scepticism, I suppose, I've been taught as an academic and a historian to be critical of narratives that try and, you know, explain everything and develop an overarching framework and to recognise the silences and, you know, the elisions and and the violences those narratives can often Mm. cause when they kind of try and rub away complexity in service of, you know, a simplified argument. Yeah, there's quite a tension there. I mean, I guess between that kind of the personal maybe not need for, but maybe need for, and, but at least tendency to have that kind of, this is the story and that's also what narrative does, right? Like there's a beginning, there's a middle and there's an end. Like it's a very sort of teleological, as you say, way of telling about something. And then that more academic side of it, where we know that it's things are more messy or there can be multiple starting points or it's not just that clear linear, linear progression oftentimes. But was that difficult in, like, was it, did it come quite easily, you know, balancing those different sides in writing this? It was something I thought about a lot and mm. it was a real challenge um, because I suppose I did feel very motivated to write, you know, a story that ordinary people would engage with and, you know, want to um kind of sink into, like something that wasn't just kind of a sort of didactic um, mm. educational tool. I wanted to tell a story and I knew I had to kind of, I suppose, follow certain conventions of storytelling to do that. But I was also, I suppose, yeah, I kind of very eager to have some distance from those conventions as well and to not totally subscribe to particularly one very um, neat trans narrative that often gets told. You know, so so often we get told this story for trans people that, you know, they were born in the wrong body, they recognised their transness, you know, in childhood, they had to fight so hard to be, you know, to affirm their gender, but then they did affirm their gender and then they re-assimilated into the gender binary and they were fixed and, you know, everything was tied up with a ribbon and it was all nice. And I suppose I just wanted to... For many reasons, I wanted to challenge that narrative. I mean, Mm -hmm. firstly, because it just didn't apply to my story at all. And, you know, the dominance of that narrative had really led me to doubt my own transness for some time Mm -hmm. because I didn't fit into that model. But also because I think there's a kind of, um, there's a a politics to that narrative that concerns me, Mm -hmm. that idea that trans people are, you know, a very particular thing means that they can be easily knowable and easily distinguished from cisgender people. And that's useful if you, you know, in a transphobic patriarchal world where you want to keep um, transgender people at a remove from the general population. When, you know, on the contrary, I think if you kind of confront the truth of the matter that, you know, these things are much messier there's kind of a continuum, I would say, of transness and cisness. And, you know, we all, all of us, no matter how we identify, have complicated relationships with gender, which could manifest in many ways. If we recognise that, um, you know, transness kind of comes to sort of, I suppose, seep out into the population at large Mm. and threaten the patriarchal structures that, you know, are really wedded to the gender binary that is tied to biological sex. So um, it's a convoluted way of saying mm. for a lot of reasons, I think it was really important to, um, you know, balance, do this balancing act of mm. telling a story but also maintaining a critical relationship to certain types of trans narratives and the work that they do in the world. It's tricky because they also, you know, institutionalised in some ways. Yeah. I think that the, what you tell, for instance, um, about your encounter with um, 
like being diagnosed with um, gender dysphoria in the, in the book, you describe that process and how there's this very particular, you know, script or narrative as well that, that medical, medi- medical profession is operating, you know, on the basis of in terms of, you know, how you need to tick certain boxes to be like a right kind of trans person. So you're not, so you can, you know, access specific kinds of, of services or whatever that might be, but like how these, you know, they are not just, sort of stories that we can or cannot identify with, but they also have quite, you know, real um, consequences. Oh, completely. I mean, (laughs) you know, the medical gatekeeping of transness is a huge problem in this country and around the world. And it's still, I mean, it's slowly getting better, but it's really tied to a binary model of transness where you're meant to follow this really narrow script where you identify as a trans person of the opposite gender to that you've been assigned in early childhood. And I actually, I had that same gatekeeping experience again this week, funnily yeah. enough. I, um, I'm, I'm having gender affirmation surgery in November, 2021. Mm-hmm. And for that um, process, um, you have to have an, another official diagnosis of um, gender dysphoria and, you know, your need for the surgery I you know as I write in the book I got diagnosed several years ago but that diagnosis is out of date so I need to do a new one and it was just it just made me really infuriated um Mm. and kind of humiliated all over again Mm. that I was being asked by this doctor you know so what toys did you like to play with in childhood and you know what were the gender of the friends you played with and you know like tell me about your childhood gender non-conformity conformativity and that's evidence of your transness or not yeah and I was just yeah. outraged I wanted to say look you know I, like, I've written a whole freaking 300 page book about being trans <laughs> like and uh, you know I've lived this mm. life for 300 years it's kind of it's it's really um degrading that we're yeah. sort of forced to kind of tie our messy lives um mm. into these very 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 narrow and prescriptive narratives to get access yeah. to the essential medical services we need to stay alive um, you know, and particularly when the medical professional might only have known you for a couple of hours, you know, I'm going to have two yeah. sessions with this psychologist yeah. and he has the right to say whether I get this, you know, incredibly important surgery or not. It's, it's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. <laughs> you couldn't get more ironic than like, please tell me how your nonconformity conforms to this. I know, I know, I know, know. which is, you know, one of my main gripes about it, that, you know, being trans is meant to be like a liberation from, or of some sort from, um, you know, gender norms and expectations, but often the way it manifests in institutional settings, it's just as rigid and prescriptive as, you know, normative cisgender roles. Yeah. Um, I was sort of going back a little bit to what we spoke about earlier. Um, So so thinking about your book um, being catalogued as a memoir, um, that, of course, is about what we've been, been speaking about here, about, you know, the, the personal story is what we expect, I guess, like from that tradition at least. But so in the book, you're also drawing on a range of other stories or sources. We might call them like there's academic research, there's poetry, there's diagnostic manuals and so on and so forth. And so this means that the, the book is at times, you know, really personal and then in other places more, I guess, maybe educational. I'm not sure if it's the wrong or, you know, yeah, the yeah. right word. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah. Um, so, so, so is it, what, what genre did you start out with, if that's something that you can even pinpoint? And what were your considerations in pulling these different stories together? There are a whole bunch of um, considerations that have kind of informed the, the form the book took. I suppose on a purely aesthetic level, um, the books I most enjoy reading are kind of a mix of personal narrative, life writing with broader kind of 
you know, history, politics, cultural criticism kind of, you know, threaded throughout. Like I love writers like Eula Biss and Gia Tolentino and, you know, a lot of American uh, women essayists who kind of I think do this incredibly well. I suppose another um, another factor in my mind was more pragmatic that, um you know, that memoir, as we've kind of touched on earlier, is a genre that connects to ordinary people and it sells and, you know, it's um, in high demand. And I knew this was an effective way to get a lot of ideas out there. And, mm. you know, I sort of think um, of the educational components of the book as kind of education by stealth that I want to, like, lure, lure people into the story, like, here is a, you know, parcel of my trauma to give you and, you know, yeah. make you feel like a good ally to read about this, but then, like, you know, here are some facts and context behind you, behind that that I'm going to bombard you with. Um, yeah. I suppose yeah. also, you know, just as a historian, um, you know, I've kind of been trained to think mm. of the individual life in relation to a society and a broader context. So that's sort of the way I've always understood my own life. Um, and just sort of the way I think about the world. So it just kind of made instinctive sense to me to write in that way. Um, and and I, I suppose a final factor that was really important was recognising the immense privilege of having a platform to tell my story, um, you know, to write a memoir with a major Australian publisher. Um, there are very, very few trans authors in this country who've had that opportunity and, you know, and I'm very cognizant that that um, opportunity came about, you know, in large part because of my whiteness, my economic privilege, you know, being affiliated with the university and all the, you know, the kind of cultural cachet that comes with that. And so I didn't, I didn't want to abuse that privilege and I suppose and just engage in a purely narcissistic exercise <laughs> of telling my own, you know, my own angst and my own pain. I thought it was incredibly important that I use that platform to, you know, shine a light on factors uh, faced by trans and gender diverse people who are less fortunate than me, you know, people mm -hmm. who suffer from the incredibly high rates of homelessness mm -hmm. and, you know, unemployment and mental illness and isolation and all those kind of things that it just seemed like kind of a core responsibility of this opportunity to do that work. Like they really sort of one serves well as a driver for the other I think or I'm not sure there's just two <laughs> um two parts or genres but like yeah they really sort of emphasize each other I guess like you get the personal story and experience but you also get that sort of broader contextualization yeah funny. and that's yeah I think you know again I was sort of emulating a lot of the conventions we use in academic history writing mm. when it's done well it often kind of oscillates between that, you know, our beloved opening anecdote to kind of set the scene and yeah, tell the yeah, story yeah. and then, the, and then you know, broader kind of theoretical contextual discussion and yeah. then, you know, often going back into individual stories as examples to illustrate certain points. Mm -hmm. I remember um, when I was doing my PhD, I was at a kind of PhD workshop event and um, I got one of the best pieces of advice I've ever got in my kind of academic career, which was to really, the, like, that the best thinkers, the best academics think in terms of scales and they can kind of master all the scales. They can go from the micro, the, you know, the kind of medium to the, the meta of, like, so what? Like, why do we care about this individual story or individual piece of research? And, like, I think ever since that's really informed the way I think about anything I write, like moving between mm. scales and the kind of you capture readers, you capture hearts and minds at the micro scale. But to really have an impact and to make people think differently and learn, you need to be able to jump to the meta 
and the ability to link between the two effectively is kind of what makes or breaks a good piece of work. I wanted to ask, um, as a historian, you're probably, you know, more accustomed to writing about people that have been, you know, long gone. Um, and with this book, I was wondering what were your considerations around writing about living people, especially with family, you know, when you were describing your parents' initial reaction to the transition? How did you navigate sensitivities around sections like that, especially when, you know, you might have been thinking, oh, these people are going to read this? They definitely are going to read it. They have read it. <laughs> um, yeah, look, this is a really, really tricky one and something I thought about a huge amount. Um, and there's such a diversity of opinion out there. You know, I spoke to so many people about, you know, how, how do you write memoir ethically? Like how does that work when you're writing about living people that you still have relationships with? And I was astonished by, yeah, the incredible diversity of responses I got. You know, some people are like, oh, well, just your story, you know, it's, it's, you own it, like say whatever you want, you know, like they can go and write their own story if they have a different take on it, which seemed, you know, I like to think of as the kind of Helen Garner school of life writing. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, I mean, I, I understand the logic of that, but I suppose I think, well, you know, unless you want to burn a lot of bridges, um, that probably doesn't completely work in the real world. Um you know, and other people I spoke to were very much, well, you know, like even to write about living people at all is kind of a, you know, potentially inherently like unethical act. Um, I suppose, you know, what I kind of ended up was somewhere in the middle um, where I, I kind of tried to write in a fairly uncensored way. Um, that's, that's probably not quite right. I very early on, I made decisions that there were certain things I wouldn't write about. You know, I think often when we read memoir, you know, when it's often very intimate and personal, embodied, we can kind of fall into the trap of thinking it's a tell-all and the author has completely, you know, kind of bared their soul. I know in my case, and I think for most memoirists, that can be further from the truth. You know, there is mm. so much that goes unsaid. There is so much that is held back. So very early on, I, you know, I made decisions that there would be no-go areas. And so there are huge silences in those books that mm. were you know, are silent to preserve relationships um, and respect the sensitivities of, you know, particular individuals. I suppose once I'd kind of made those general decisions, then I kind of tried to write in a fairly uncensored way. Like once I'd figured, you know, I'd write certain scenes and certain moments, I tried just to kind of write them as I experienced them. But then I, um, uh, before the book was finalised, I, um, you know, every time I'd written about a person, I sent them that part of the book for them to oh, review. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> which is cute. like, oh my God, that was, that was an experience because people have wild reactions to being written about. Yeah, right. Um, it's so interesting. I learned actually so much about human nature from this experience. It was fascinating, but incredibly stressful. Um, like it was fascinating that some people just don't give a damn. Like some people, like I'd say, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I've written a scene about you. I wanted to give you the opportunity to read it and review it before the book is finalised. And we're like, oh, I don't care. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I trust you. You won't say anything awful. It's all good. I'll see it when the book comes out. When other people, you know, they wanted to read every single sentence and found it incredibly confronting to be written mm -hmm. about, you know, even in quite positive ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Okay. They, you know, I think what I realised through this process is that we all go through life as the protagonist of our own story, mm. right? It's kind of 
self-evident in some ways, but I hadn't quite thought about it that before. But when we see ourselves reduced to a minor character in someone else's story, like a prop to make a point, people I think often find that almost humiliating to be kind of reduced, to be minimised in such a way. And, you know, and invariably like their recollection, you know, everyone will have a different recollection of the same scene. Mm. So it's going to be different to Mm -hmm. how, you know, you would write it. So that was a really interesting process to navigate and there was certainly a lot of kind of tricky conversations. But in many instances, you know, it made my relationships with the people involved a lot richer, um, you know, particularly with my mm-hmm. mother. I mean, she's, you know, probably the individual who shows up most often in the book, so she had a lot of sections to review. <laughs> and um, she's an incredibly private person. You know, I mean, she's mm. the opposite of me, like writing a memoir or anything personal would be like the last thing she would ever do. Um, you know, she has no social media, like she has a private number. She doesn't want anyone to know anything about her. So, you know, I mean, it was an incredible act of kind of trust and love that she gave me permission to write about her at all. And at first she, you know, I think she'd be fine with me saying this, that she did find it quite confronting. Mm. But she, you know, it really deepened our relationship because, you know, it led her to understand my experience of gender dysphoria and transition and, you know, navigating responses from family in a much more deeper level. And it, you know, and it prompted all these new conversations that we never mm. would have had otherwise, um, which, you know, really in a way um, means that our relationship is kind of the best that it's ever been. I think, mm. you know, we have this newfound kind of respect and understanding for ourselves and ability to have hard conversations that we didn't quite have before. Though I don't know if she's ever quite forgiven me for mentioning that she has white hair now. I think she found that quite humiliating. I think in her mind's eye, she's still got, you know, radiantly blonde hair like she did when she was 20. Um, So that was a bit confronting, but she let me keep that bit in. Oh, that's good. That was nice of her. It's such a fascinating thing, though, I think, because I assume a lot lot of people writing memoir, um, you know, about that has living people in it, that they have that conundrum of not wanting to tidy up an experience because that's a big part of why you're writing the book, right? Like, is you want to be able to tell a complex and messy story about what it is to have a particular life experience. But at the same time, yeah, like not to risk the relationships in your life that are the most important to you or, you know, other people's privacy and things like that. Yeah, it's incredibly challenging. And I don't think I necessarily got it right, um, you know, and all of the time. I think you know, this was very much, you know, obviously my first memoir, I was kind of learning as I went along. And, you know, there's a lot of things I would probably do differently um, if I was to write a second memoir. But I think there was also kind of freedom of it, you know, of being a novice and kind of going in blind that because I, I didn't, I wasn't kind of quite fully aware of how much some people would struggle with being written about, I was able to kind of be uncensored and say things I perhaps wouldn't have otherwise yeah, I'd imagine like maybe a lot of people that are written about in memoirs only find out when they pick up a published copy off the shelf. So it sounds like your process was pretty ethical to me. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I tried as well as I can. One of my friends actually um, had, uh, she dated a novelist many years in her past and, and realised that she showed up in one of his novels in a quite an unflattering um, sexual encounter. So she was very excited to appear in my book as a kind of good trans ally because now she's, you know, got two literary incarnations and the second is much more flattering. Wow. But it is interesting what you said. I like that 
um, what you put it about, we're all protagonists in our own stories or like just like, you know, the difference like in perspective. So when you try, like it just will never be the same experience. Like you've written it from your point of view, obviously. And so sending it to any other person will always be like, like really? <laughs> was, was, was that what happened? Or was that how you perceived me? Or was that what I said, how that came out? Or, what, you know, just like those things, even if it's not necessarily something that's a horrible presentation of you, but just like... Yeah. Yeah, I think I think dialogue is a really interesting one in this space Mm. as well because um, I sort of made like an aesthetic decision to include a lot of dialogue in you know in scenes, um, you know, between me and other characters, basically to kind of tell it in the in the present tense and make those scenes kind of come alive um, and make the book more engaging. But you know, of course that dialogue is not exactly the dialogue that was used at the time because, you know, I didn't have a microphone in my pocket for a conversation that happened three years ago or 20 years ago. So they're all approximations. And, um, again, I think my mother, who was a lawyer and, you know, very much into, like, literal truth and facts as a result of her legal training, found my, you know, inevitable creativity when it came to dialogue a bit confronting at first and and that led us to have really interesting questions I suppose about the nature of memoir as a genre that it purports to be factual but Mm. it is inevitably you know make-believe in many many respects you know unless people keep incredibly detailed diaries and you know record conversations and, and so on that there's a lot that is, you know, based on memory, but that is um, invented to, you know, add kind of realism and engagement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, like, it's about memoir, but it's also about memory, as you say, like, you know, and mm. how our memory, like what we remember is often, you know, so flawed. <laughs> yeah. and so just tainted by other things that, that have happened or we think um, that would definitely have happened and so on. So, yeah, but it's, it's fascinating bringing it into that format. That's true of the conjecture too. Like if your, if your mum comes forward and says that's not how I remember it, it's also kind of the, her memory is also kind of under question as well. Well, you know, we accept in her, our family that she's got a terrible memory. Yeah. <laughs> I can just remember everything better than her. That's so helpful. That was, that, yeah, we just kind of ignored what she said. She was like, oh, well, I don't remember it that way, but you always remember things better than me. So it must be true, which was useful. I could have said anything. <laughs> exactly. That's a good way of yeah. solving, solving this. And I mean, I was, I was going to say on the point of memory as well. I mean, I suppose that was a kind of interesting Another interesting area where writing this book kind of interacted with my training as a historian. But, you know, I, um, I've done quite a bit of oral history as a historian and, you know, in learning to do that, we're trained to be very sceptical of memory um, and, the, you know, and the lies we tell ourselves. And um, But here I was, you know, relying on my own memory to write a story of my life and calling that the truth, <laughs> um, which, you know, seemed like a bit of a, a, bit of a um, hypocritical place to be in. Um, yeah, and so I suppose, you know, like this is a true story, but I would, you know, be the first person to admit that it's a creative artefact, that it's a product mm. of a particular moment in time yeah. and, you know, um, that there are many truths that could be told of, of my life and others' lives. So if the book comes out on the 31st, how do you feel about it going into the world? Um, that's a good question. A few weeks ago I felt absolutely terrified, um, like actually just like sick to the stomach at thinking, God, you know, why have I written such a personal book and, you know, that my academic colleagues and my undergraduate students might read, you know, do I really want to show this much detail about like my genitals? It's quite <laughs> intense. Um, 
But I suppose now we're getting closer to the publication date. I actually um, feel really excited to have it out in the world. Um, you know, I feel proud of writing this. I feel proud of doing it, you know, um, you know, locked out in a pandemic. Um, I hope it'll spark interesting conversations about gender and transness and identity more broadly. Um, and you know, in a way, I think I just sort of want to get it done because, you know, I feel like I've been in this kind of weird limbo waiting period for months now where the book was finalised and I've been waiting for it to come out. To finish off the podcast, we asked Eve to read a passage from the new book. They chose a passage that reflects the power of narrative to both construct and undo our experiences. The beginnings of transness are always contested. Were you born this way or were you made? Did you emerge from the womb in the wrong body? Or did you just read too many books as an impressionable undergraduate? Are you real? Do you matter? Or are you just a fantasist looking for attention? Each story of beginning is a weapon that can be used for or against you. Each life a battleground. The same battles rage over trans identities at large. Where did you come from is another way to ask, are you legitimate? Origin stories shape how the world imagines trans bodies, trans lives. Trans advocates know that we have always existed, part of the tapestry of humankind since time immemorial. Not a fad, a phase, a delusion, but an immutable part of the human condition. Immutable and therefore legitimate. Among reactionaries, trans gets dismissed as an invention a gender ideology designed by contemporary deviance with a leftist agenda. Trans as a harmful fiction, a threat to the natural order of things. Trans as a latecomer, a trend that will pass. For historians, trans dates back to the invention of sexology in the late 1800s. It was an idea that emerged alongside broader efforts to put people into boxes. The Victorian age was in love with classification, a time of proliferating categories designed to order humanity like butterflies on a pin board. Black, white, normal, deviant, self, other, man, woman, primitive, civilised. Trans, or originally the invert or transvestite, was a medical concept used to classify people so they could be known, ordered, controlled. To be clear, this was not the beginning of gender nonconformity. It was just the moment when trans became the concept Western medicine used to understand those who coloured outside the lines of man and woman. For historians, trans is not human nature nor fat of the moment, but merely one way of understanding gender diversity. There have been others. Over the centuries, almost every culture has had names for people who don't fit within the gender binary. Although many have been written out of history, lost to the germs and guns of colonization. Doubtless, there'll be more to come. There are many stories of trans beginning. Always, the stories matter. They tell us how to see, who to see, whether to revere or revile this thing we call trans. Stories make worlds, and the stories we tell about transness can be a matter of life or death. My life, so often something I was tempted to throw away, was saved and remade by trans stories. All About Eve is available at all good bookstores and online. Thank you for listening to this episode of Narrative Now. I'm Ash Barnwell. 
And I'm Stina Raum. And this episode was produced by the wonderful Kenna McTavish. If you liked what you just heard, you can make sure you don't miss the next episode of Narrative Now by subscribing to this podcast wherever you usually find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter with the handles Ash underscore Barnwell and Robin underscore Sina. And keep up to date on our events via the Narrative Network website. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank <laughs> you.